You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome to our event on the topic of truth, justice, and racial equality with our distinguished guest, Glenn Lowry. Our event this afternoon is part of a fall series of events at the college on the larger theme of discrimination and the search for justice and truth. My name is Edmund Santuri. I'm a professor of religion and philosophy at St. Olaf College and Morrison Family Director of the College's Institute for Freedom and Community, uh, the institute that is supporting our event uh, this afternoon and the general uh, uh, theme and the series of events this fall. The purpose of St. Olaf's Institute for Freedom and Community is to stimulate and encourage free inquiry and meaningful debate of important political and social issues among students, faculty, staff, and the larger public. By exploring diverse ideas about politics, markets, and society, The Institute aims to challenge presuppositions, question easy or comfortable answers, and foster constructive civil dialogue among those with differing values and contending points of view. For help in organizing our event, very special thanks go to the staff of the Institute, Assistant Director Tanya Charlotte-Paley, whom you've just heard from, and Administrative Assistant Dawn Bartz, Nothing of what you see and hear this afternoon happens without their intelligent, diligent energies, and we're much appreciative. Thanks also to Molly Work and Carrie Vanderbeen of St. Olaf Marketing Communications and to Jeff O'Donnell and his broadcast media services crew for their contributions. Thanks also to the St. Olaf students who are helping us uh, this afternoon and to St. Olaf faculty who participated last July in a faculty seminar where we addressed some of the issues that are being uh, raised in our uh, series this fall. We are pleased to have with us this afternoon Glenn Lowry, who is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Economics at Brown University. Professor Lowry holds the BA in Mathematics from Northwestern University and the PhD in Economics from MIT. His distinctions and honors are legion. He was the first African-American to be awarded tenure in economics at Harvard University. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Economics Association, a member of the American Philosophical Society and U.S. Council on Foreign Relations, and a fellow of the Econometric Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor Lowry has published and lectured widely on various topics in economic theory. He is also among the nation's leading commentators on racial inequality. He has published more than 200 essays and reviews in journals of public affairs in the U.S. and abroad. He is a contributing editor at the Boston Review and for many years a contributing editor at the New Republic. He is the author of a number of books, including The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, published by Harvard University Press in 2002. Uh, He's the primary author of the book Race, Incarceration, and American Values, published by MIT Press in 2008. He is a host of of a podcast called The Glenn Show, on which matters of race and social policy are items of frequent discussion 
with important guest interlocutors, people like John McWhorter, Tyler Cowen, Michelle Kerr, and Michael Fortner. It's an exceedingly lively show, full of intellectual content, and I, I recommend it highly if you haven't seen it. Much more could be said in description of Professor Lowry's achievements, but enough has been said to mark his extraordinary distinction. We are grateful for his being with us tonight. Would you please join me in welcoming our special guest, Glenn Lowry. Glenn, a little over a decade ago, a man named Christopher Allen Bracey, who is currently interim dean of George Washington University Law School, published a book entitled Saviors or Sellouts, The Promise and Peril of Black Conservatism from Booker T. Washington to Condoleezza Rice. In that book, Bracey, himself an African-American but a liberal, was trying to understand the phenomenon of black conservatism. He devoted a section of the book to Glenn Lowry. He identified you, among others, as a black conservative, though he noted some liberal turns in your views at the time that he was writing. And in fact, uh, your historical relationship with conservatism has been, even since then, enormously dynamic and complex. But more generally, Bracey posed in the book the following provocative question, and I think it was intended to be provocative, and it is this. What exactly does it mean to be a black conservative, and why would anyone choose to become one? And I thought we might start in similarly provocative fashion by putting to you a variation on Bracey's question. So, with respect to matters of race, racial equality and inequality, the pursuit of justice in racial matters, the pursuit of truth in these matters, what exactly does it mean to be a black conservative, and why would anyone choose to become one? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the first part of the question is pretty easy. What it means to be a black conservative... And by the way, I am not confessing to being a black conservative. <laughs> is that you happen to be black and you are a conservative. This is not complicated. <laughs> Why would anyone choose to be one is a question that befuddles me. Why not? Are you saying that in virtue of a person being black, or perhaps what you mean is authentically black, perhaps the question is would a truly black person be a conservative? Are you saying that in virtue of a person being black, there's something problematic or uh, paradoxical about them embracing conservatism? After all, I don't know, 40% or something like that of the population of the country is conservative. What would it mean for there to be no black conservatives? That would be, it seems to me, the anomalous condition. Uh, there's a long history of conservative thought amongst African Americans going all the way back. Uh, the African-American church is conservative, at least on cultural matters, to a very substantial degree, and it's an important cultural uh, uh, thrust, an important stream of African-American thinking uh, in, in the history of black people in the country. Um, is conservatism the enemy of black people? That sounds to me more like a partisan Democratic Party trope 
than a defensible socio-political position. Conservatism is intrinsically the enemy of black people. Black people have a vested interest in high taxes, have a vested interest in um, abortion, uh, in uh, making it uh, not so hard to get across the border and not so hard to uh, deal with people who have illegally crossed the border. These are all, I'm thinking, liberal positions. And the idea that black people have somehow, in virtue of being black, should be led to embrace those positions, it, it, uh, it befuddles me. Uh, so, all right, I haven't really answered you. I've, I've, in a way, questioned the question, but let me answer the question. <clears throat> if you're sitting, as I was, in Chicago in the late 1960s as a young man, watching what was happening in the early years after the Civil Rights Movement, or if you're sitting in Detroit as I was as a young professor of economics at the University of Michigan, watching what's happening in that city in the mid and the late 1970s. Or if you're sitting at uh, the table when they're debating welfare reform in the mid-1990s, watching what's happening to the African-American family and so on, it's entirely possible that you might think, hmm, What the liberal Democrats are doing is not proving to be so good for my people. They're fostering dependency. Suppose I thought that dependency on the government was a bad thing and that autonomy and self-reliance was a good thing. Have I betrayed black people by thinking that? I don't think so. Suppose I had some questions about affirmative action as a permanent institution to remedy the underrepresentation of African Americans at colleges and universities. Worried that, for example, by creating a different dispensation for assessing African-American students, we were inviting a patronization of those students. That's a conservative view. Is it somehow not black? It could well be in the interest of African-Americans. Suppose I worried about the consequences of criminal victimization in African-American communities, worried about the security in person and property of my people, and decided because of that that law and order wasn't such a bad thing for black people. Is there something anomalous or in need of explanation? about that. So not every African-American is going to find themselves being a conservative. Most African-Americans are not going to find themselves being conservatives. Yes, the Republican Party has often stood against the interests of African-Americans, but that no African-American could ever be conservative in their basic instincts and political opinions, that, it strikes me, would be allowing identity I'm an African-American, loyal to African-Americanness, having to be black, being authentically black, being black the way that I'm taught being black is supposed to be. It would allow identity to trump my rationality and my individuality. I'm a human being first. I think about politics and I come to the conclusions that I come to. It doesn't stop me from being black. Sometimes those opinions are conservative. No apology is being offered for that here. Okay. Um, you mentioned affirmative action and your uh, attitude toward affirmative action, uh, casting in a somewhat uh, in a negative form in, in your remarks. As I understand it, you, there has been uh, a kind of development or oscillation in your views on affirmative action. Early on, you, were, you had some reservations about it, but then you talked more positively about it, and now you've returned to a position which is somewhat more critical. I, am I getting that trajectory right? Uh, and if so, what, what has been involved in the unfolding of your views on that matter? 
Well, it's a sacred cow, you know. I mean, I once had a friend who uh, said to me in a discussion, an African-American conservative who said to me, he said, you know, affirmative action for black people, it's a little bit like the issue of Israel for Jewish people. It's a make-or-break issue. It's a life-or-death issue. There's only one correct position to be, to take on that issue. Otherwise, you're disloyal to the group. And there is, I think, no small amount of truth to that. But you've asked me about my own thinking. So early in my career, I wrote a dissertation at MIT in economic theory uh, called Essays in the Theory of the Distribution of Income, and half of it was speculating about how one might explain the persistence of the economic disadvantage of African Americans in an ongoing way, even after the uh, establishment, more or less, of, um, of a non-discrimination laws and such. What could account for the persistence of black disadvantage. And I argued that the civil rights laws only uh, held sway in the formal transactions that we engage in in the marketplace and such. They could govern how a landlord would behave vis-a-vis a tenant, how an employer would behave vis-a-vis a prospective employee, a banker vis-a-vis someone who submits a loan application. But they could not govern the civil rights laws, the non-discrimination principle could not govern informal social relations, who it is we decide to befriend or marry or accept as a neighbor, cohabitate with, live in the same neighborhood. I reasoned further that human development had aspects to it that depended upon formal transactions, people's opportunity to go to college or whatever it might be, to get a job where they could acquire training and develop their skills, but that human development also depended upon resources that were only available through the informal social relations that connect people outside of the view of the state, outside of the governance of law, and that because social stigma disadvantaging blacks infected those social relationships, the fact of equal civil rights law would not guarantee equal, true, truly equal opportunity for black human development and therefore might not guarantee an elimination of the gap of economic disadvantage affecting African Americans. I know that took me a long time to say, and please bear with me because I think it's important for me to lay out that framework. On the basis of that concern, the concern that racism in the past could have permanent effects because its consequences would be carried over through time and across generations via the disadvantaged social relations that African Americans experience. I argued that the state should take some proactive steps to further the goal of racial equality. The colorblind norm should not rule with respect to state action in the face of a history of discrimination given the reality of ongoing social disadvantage and stigma for African Americans. That's what I argued. That makes me pro-affirmative action in that very general sense. The sense of laissez-faire is not enough. Saying that we've got a level playing field now, but ignoring the fact that what had gone on for 150 years is not enough. So in principle, from very early on in my career, I was friendly to the idea that intervention by the government with the goal of promoting African-American equality was a good thing. On the other hand, 
observing the consequences of the use of differential standards for judging African-American performance, that is to say, and let me not be obscure, you're admitting people to an elite enterprise, like studying engineering at MIT, being an undergraduate at Harvard, something like that. UC Berkeley, Stanford, Caltech, something like that. Medical school, high-end law school, etc. You're already selecting from the right tail of the distribution of performance within the population, regardless of race. You have self-consciously declared yourself to be elite. But you also want to be diverse. You want to be elite, but you don't want to be lily white. You want to be quote-unquote inclusive. And so you bring into your practice of selection standards when judging African-American applicants that differ substantially from the standards that you're using for others. You're selecting elites, but you're using a different cutoff, a different threshold for selecting African-Americans into that enterprise. I worried that that practice, not as a transitional matter, but as a permanent way of doing business, would undermine the integrity of African-American achievement, would cast a pall over the presence of African-Americans in elite pursuits because everyone would know that the same standards for selecting them hadn't been employed, that it would create bad incentives because people would know that they didn't have to necessarily perform as well on the law school admissions test or in their college GPA in order to have a real shot of getting into the law school. If they were black, a different standard was being applied to them. I distinguished in my thinking between a transitional program in which Noting history, one undertook to increase black presence, but with the idea that in the fullness of time, similar treatment for black applicants and white would be employed. I distinguish between a transitional use of affirmative action and the permanent reliance on it, and I reasoned that the permanent reliance on it ultimately was inconsistent with what I was calling true racial equality. True racial equality is equality of dignity and respect. It's equality of standing and of performance. And I reasoned that if the use of test scores to select students was justifiable at all, then the use of different test scores to select black and white students would not be justifiable if the goal in the long run was racial equality. I stand by that. Affirmative action is problematic. So early in my career, I wanted to recognize that laissez-faire attitudes toward racial equality were not sufficient because history cast a long shadow. Later in my career, and with a little bit of life experience under my belt, I came to the conclusion that permanent reliance on differential standards for judging black people was no way for black people to walk around with our heads held high and confident that we were being respected by those with whom we were interacting. Performance would ultimately be the currency of the realm. If we were not able to develop our performative skills to the point where we didn't need to rely on differential treatment, we would not be truly equal. I want equality for my people. And that's why my views on affirmative action have shifted. So as I'm understanding what you're saying, um, affirmative action was justified if you could see a termination point. Is that right? That is to say it would lead to a, a, a state of affairs under which or it could for, for foreseeably lead to a state of affairs under which it would no longer be necessary. But if... Uh, there was any evidence to suggest that this is turning into a permanent process or it's not moving in the appropriate direction, uh, then that's, re that's reason to reconsider this as a policy or a practice. 
That's part of what I'm saying. I'm saying affirmative action in 1980 is one thing. Affirmative action in 2020 is a different thing. I'm saying affirmative action as a tool is one thing. Affirmative action as a crutch is a different thing. I'm saying that the base issue is the development of the capacities of African-American people to perform. To the extent that affirmative action is developmental in its orientation, that is special attention to youngsters to give them the opportunity so that they can enhance their natural given talents and have the experiences that are necessary to allow them to compete, that's one thing. I'm saying that affirmative action is a cover for elite institutions so that they can present the right optics in their yearbooks. It's a different thing entirely. So I'm trying to make a nuanced argument. Not affirmative action is a banner that I'm waving. I'm for affirmative action. I'm for racial justice. But affirmative action is part of a more carefully conceived strategy for promoting equality, equality of African Americans, not titular headcount equality, baseline performance equality. We're not anywhere close to achieving that. And the affirmative action that the elite institutions use in order, as I say, for optics may be coming at the expense of true equality for African Americans in the long run. That's what, that's the argument that I'm making. You know, we can, you know, have at me. So, uh, so then in light of that current uh, affirmative action um, policies, uh, diversity strategies need to be discontinued or modified or revised in some special way? Or what do you see as a kind of practical response to your observation, if it happens to be the correct one? I mean, I don't know how to respond to you, Ed. I, you're asking me for a concrete program. If we don't have affirmative action, then what do we do? Okay, I'll try to respond. I'm running an institution. I've got people I'm selecting. At Brown, we get, I don't know, 30,000 applications for a class, and we admit 1,800. So that's pretty selective. Okay. There's various things that I can do. One of the things that I can do is have in my mind an implicit quota, and that's what it is. I have in my mind an implicit target. I want 8% or 10% or 12% of my entering class to be black. Okay. I'm going to do what I need to do to get that. That's not the only way to proceed. Do what I need to do to get that while remaining as selective and elite as I am. I'm admitting one in 16 or whatever it is, applicants. Um, so I can pick from the top down. I've got black applicants. I can pick from the top down and get my 8 or 10 or 12 percent. I've got white, Asian, Latino applicants. I can pick from the top down and get the target percentages that I'm going after. And then, and then when I'm done with that, I may end up with a class in which my African-American students, on average, are significantly less distinguished in terms of their, um, in terms of their exhibited uh, academic skill. We measure these things by different instruments, and the tests are one of those instruments. The tests are not, uh, you know, the, the word of God. They're not a, a window onto the soul of the applicant. They're just a piece of information that allows me to assess, to assess the academic achievement of the applicant. And I can end up with substantial differences in my incoming class between the measured uh, academic achievement of my African-American students and others. That's one way to proceed. Rather than have my target be 12% and create a circumstance uh, ex post facto in which there are substantial differences in the academic achievement of my black students and the others who are in the class, I'd have my goal be 8% or 6% 
rather than maintain my uh, determination to be super, super, super elite and only select from two standard deviations above the mean in the distribution of uh, academic instruments amongst my, my applicants, I could be more... Um, more ecumenical in the way in which I admitted my class for everybody, not just for the African-American students, for everybody. There are many margins that the university, I speak as an economist, a margin is simply a place where you make a decision to do more or less of something that's important to the thing that you care about. There are many margins on which a university can operate. One of them is... um, on how elite the university is overall. Because if the university determines not to be so focused on test scores, it doesn't have to create a class with its 8 or 10 or 12% of African Americans in which the disparity in test scores is so different. That's the thing that I'm worried about. Now, you can tell me it doesn't matter. You can tell me that a student sitting in front of me that had a 790 on the SAT math and a 760 on the SAT verbal is not discernibly different in their performance from a student sitting in front of me who has a 650 on the SAT math and a 620 on the SAT verbal. I can tell you after 40 years of college teaching that I don't believe that. Test scores are not a window onto the person's soul, but they are correlated with performance. So what we're doing is we're creating a circumstance where there's actually objective differences in the post-admissions performance amongst the students. Oh, God, I actually said it. How else could it be? I mean, this is simply logic. Either those test score differences among the students don't matter for anybody, or they do matter for people. And if they matter for people, then they matter when you have large racial differences in those scores for black people and people who are not black. That is not equality. I'm willing to wait for equality, Ed. I'm willing to go with 4% if that's what it takes, 5%, 7%. And I'm willing to be less elite. I'm willing to be less precious less self-consciously trying to construct a meritocratic uh, outcome in which racial differences in performance are put under the cover. No one wants to talk about it. Lies are perpetrated about it. I want equality for African-American people. That means investment. My position is not laissez-faire. My position is not turn my back on the situation. That means putting money into schools. That means programs for developing the skills of of youngsters who show promise in high school. That means maybe five years or six years of uh, undergraduate training to get somebody to the point where they can really compete in the Ph.D. program and they can be admitted and so on and so forth. I could go down the list. Developmental affirmative action, not preferential affirmative action. I don't know. Did I answer your question? I think so. Uh, shifting the emphasis a little bit, um, earlier on you made reference to a kind of uh, change in your view on the the category or the value of colorblindness. You said that... um, Yeah. uh, That, you know, when I was young, uh, we we were preached that there was kind of deep, intimate connection between justice and blindness, impartiality, abstraction from color, etc., and so forth. Um, now the view is that, at least one view out there that's pretty prominent, is that uh, claims or insistences on colorblindness represents a form of blindness in a way that uh, one needs to attend in very explicit and specific ways uh, to racial identity. And a refusal to see, ra- to see race is in some sense to be blind to certain kinds of political realities. Um, so there's been a major shift, I think, in public attitudes toward that uh, value and, and concept. 
Now, I, I sense in your own trajectory, once again, that there has been uh, a kind of development there that you started out with a kind of maybe Martin Luther King-like commitment to colorblindness, and then you sort of shifted, moved away from that, and now uh, you're, you're wondering whether or not that shift was the appropriate way to go. It, what, what's involved in that, if I've got you correctly? Okay, in, I, in terms of colorblindness... I was against it before I was for it, before I was against it, before I was for it. <laughs> so in that dissertation that I described, I was against colorblindness. I was saying, look, history casts a very long shadow. There's the formal sector where you're going to impose your colorblind norms, but there's the informal sector where nobody is confused about that. And everybody knows what race their mate belongs to, and they are, they're concerned about it. Adoption agencies know that the preference for adopting infants who are in need of parents differs based on the race of the people who are selling eggs for a fertility treatment know that the buyers of those eggs are concerned about the racial character, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you mean colorblindness? Okay, that's where I was. Then I became a Reagan conservative. In the 1980s, me and Clarence Thomas were buddies. And the catechism was, let's get beyond race. And I bought that. Um, and it was an idealistic position. Uh, it was both politically untenable, but I think at the deepest philosophical level it was inadequate, perhaps for reasons that you've hinted at. But, you know, I was swept up in the time, and it was what it was. I'm sure that Bracey, uh, you know, talks about all of this amongst the, the black conservatives of that era. Uh, and I found myself, I found myself going along with it until we got to 1996, the California uh, ballot proposition 209, when I was involved with a conservative organization that then Justice Thomas was very friendly towards, something called the um, Center for New Black Leadership. And um, we were asked to go out to California and join Ward Connerly. No one here will remember who he is, but he was a prominent businessman in California, an African-American who was stridently opposed to affirmative action and who led the campaign for ballot proposition 209, which was enacted in California and which banned affirmative action in government contracting and in college admissions in that state. He was successful in that campaign, 1996. And we were asked, the Center for New Black Leadership, of which I was the chair, to go out and campaign for it. And I thought about it. I thought about it very hard. On the one hand, I was kind of believing the mantra that we should be a colorblind society. On the other hand, I was also trying to make our organization credible with the African-American public more broadly. I was trying to give black people an opportunity to look at black conservatism in a different light. You know, I mean, business development and whatnot, strong family values and whatnot. I mean, that's not anathema to black people. And I thought if I went out to California and campaigned openly for ballot proposition 209, I would destroy my credibility on any other issue with African-Americans, and so I demurred, much to the chagrin of my colleagues. I ended up having to resign as chairman of the board of this small organization, small but well-funded, uh, <laughs> because uh, the rest of the board were, were just, uh, you know, uh, people were very annoyed with me. You know, Brother Shelby Steele, my friend, you know, said, I thought we agreed. Well, we did agree. Justice Thomas in the background very annoyed at the fact that I wasn't on board for that. But I pulled back. I, pulled, I blinked, if you like. 
And that was a part of a broader, this is about me and not everybody's going to be interested, but that was a part of a broader evolution in my thinking where I started moving to the left on a number of different issues, culminating in that book, uh, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, 2008, which was a full-throated denunciation of the uh, mass incarceration regime that was so uh, detrimentally affecting the African-American population. I, I was moving left more generally, and so this was a part of it. But for the reasons that I've already given voice to, I was watching what was going on uh, in various institutions in the society through the 90s and into the current century and up to the present day. And I was concerned for reasons that I've already given voice to about whether or not the policy of racial preference was consistent with the aspiration of African Americans achieving equal status over the longer run. So I wouldn't take the principled position, even today, that we have to be colorblind. I think that's naive. And I think in the mouths of some people on the right, it's, 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 it's a trope. It's a move. They're really not interested in grappling with the problem of racial equality, and they're looking for cover. And so they repair to this posture, this supposedly idealistic posture, but ignore the reality of race going on in our lives. So, so um, I would say that. On the other hand, I do think at the end of the day that... Uh, you know, African Americans here are Americans. That the the biggest challenges that we confront, at least in terms of public policy, require 50% plus one in support in order to be enacted into law. That the poverty that I think characterizes life for white people in, I don't know, J.D. Vance's uh, Southwest Ohio and Eastern Kentucky, or in uh, trailer parks in uh, Milwaukee that Matthew Desmond describes, I think, brilliantly in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Evicted, or whatever, opioid-addicted people who are suffering and whatnot. Uh, Many of those people are white people, not just black people. And so I would say at the end of the day, the best way to frame social justice problems in the United States for political reasons but also for principled reasons would not be to frame them mainly in terms of race. That's different from a stick-figured colorblindness that says, oh, race is over, let's move on. I don't see color anymore, okay? It's different from that. But it is a kind of principled colorblindness. I wouldn't want to use those terms. I would say transracial humanism. That would be the way that I would put it. I would say equal weight on the lives of all of our citizens. I would say all lives matter. (laughs) But I would say it not as a rebuke, of the social justice warriors who want police to stop shooting young black men, I want them to stop shooting young black men too. I would say it rather in the spirit of arguing that if we want to frame policy questions in America so that we can get our hands around them and solve them, we are best off to frame them in transracial terms. Doesn't mean I'm unaware of the fact that there's such a thing as implicit bias that might cause a police officer to shoot an innocent uh, black person. It means that I've actually looked at the Washington Post database on police shootings. Have anybody here looked at that database? You can find it just like that. Every single shooting that they can uh, identify in the press and in official government documents is chronicled. Over 1,200 a year. They're all listed chronologically. You can go down the list, and there's a column that says race, and it says H for Hispanic, A for Asian, uh, uh, B for black, and W for white. And you just scan down that column. There's also a column for gender, sex. It says M for male and F for female. They're almost all M's. 
But under the column for race, a lot of them are W's. 1,200 or so people killed in the country every year by police officers. Only 300 or less of them are African-American. Most of them are white. If I want to solve the problem of police killings, and I do, I would argue that the best way to frame that problem is in terms of the rights of citizens not to be preyed upon by officers of the state. Full stop. Saying that does not make me into a stick-figured advocate of colorblindness. I think rather it makes me into someone who understands something about the nature of our country, which is that the justice issues are transracial. Uh, you mentioned the book on um, incarceration. Um, I take it there's a kind of debate that was spawned by uh, Michelle Alexander's book, um, where she characterizes the current uh, incarceration system with the disproportionate uh, punishment of blacks uh, as a new Jim Crow, um, and therefore kind of systemic uh, racism, uh, and that that view has been, uh, to some degree, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, challenged by uh, Michael Fortner's work, uh, where he tries to argue, he is an African American, he tries to argue that, uh, a good bit of the drug, uh, the, the, the formation of the drug laws during the Rockefeller period and so forth, uh, were motivated by members of the black community and therefore it's a more complicated picture than Michelle Alexander makes it out to be. Um, are, do you have a, a position in, with respect to that particular debate now? Uh, yeah, I do. Michelle Alexander's book is called The New Jim Crow, as you know. That uh, Michael Fortner is a political scientist at the City University of New York, African American, and his book, I believe, is called uh, The Silent Black Majority. And it is a history of African American reaction to uh, the drug problem uh, in uh, New York in uh, the 70s and 80s and on up to the present day and the extent to which grassroots uh, revulsion at the consequences of open drug trafficking in black communities ended up leading to support for the draconian Rockefeller drug laws that were enacted in that state. Now, a lot of black people were on Rockefeller's side and probably those laws would have never been enacted into law if it hadn't been for the support from black communities and he thinks that's a story worth telling. We should probably also mention uh, uh, Foreman's book, uh, James Foreman, the Yale Law Professor, um, uh, Locking Up Our Own, I think is what his book is called, which is a history of uh, similar issues with a different intonation than Fortner, but nevertheless, uh, and Foreman is uh, focused on Washington, D.C. So uh, I think Michelle Alexander's intervention it was obviously very uh, influential and was important. Um, and raise the question of whether or not uh, the extent to which the disparity and the, the hit of mass incarceration by race could be likened uh, to or could be understood as another instance of a very old American story of black subordination. Um, I think it was overly simplistic and a little bit rhetorical, although it was, you know, not without some evidence in the effort to support a view, but I don't think it told the whole story. And I actually think uh, subsequent scholarship in not only these books that we've mentioned uh, points out that the story is more complicated than that. Um, for example, Michelle Alexander downplays violence. 
She argues as if every African-American who's locked up is locked up because they were caught with a joint in their pocket and the cops are looking for them to have drugs and are therefore locking them up. Most people who are in prison in this country are not in prison for the simple possession of drugs. They're in prison for having committed violent crimes. Uh, what about the effect of violence on black communities? There's not a word of that in Michelle Alexander's text. Would a serious treatment of crime and punishment in America somehow manage not to discuss the implications of antisocial behavior amongst African Americans for other African Americans? Would a serious public policy discount those implications? I don't think so. She's telling part of the story, not all of the story. I think, this is Glenn Lowry, our sentences are too long in America. I think there's so much plea bargaining that courts never have a chance to, and juries never have a chance to adjudicate the cases that are ambiguous and are difficult and exercise some sense of judgment before they consign somebody to 10 years or 20 years. I think three strikes and you're out, three felony uh, offenses, and we're going to throw away the key, 25 years to life, is unconscionable. I think having more people per capita in prison for life without the possibility of parole than does the country of Sweden have per capita in prison for life for any reason. The numbers are about 50 per uh, 100,000. About 50 people per 100,000 in America are in prison for life without the possibility of parole. And that's roughly the incarceration rate in Sweden for any length of time. Um, It's despicable. Okay? I also think that public order in urban areas where African Americans are concentrated is the first business of local government. I think being carjacked at a gasoline pump at 1 o'clock in the morning by somebody who puts an automatic weapon in my face, nobody should have to live like that, and it's the state's responsibility to see that it's not so. I think Gangbangers rolling down the street, settling their beasts by popping their pistols out the window and shooting six-year-olds who are sitting on their mother's lap is barbarity. And so somewhere between waving the bloody shirt of racism on the one hand and running around calling for lock them up and throw away the key on the other is to be found a defensible morally and politically public policy that recognizes the humility of African Americans, both those who offend and those who are preyed upon. That's where I'm trying to locate myself in this debate. Okay, we're close to the time where we're going to begin um, Q&A from the general audience, um, uh, beginning with uh, Professor Anthony Batiza. I just want to say one thing before we do that and get your reaction, but it has to be brief. Have I been answering it? Oh, no, no. I want to be understood. That's all. Yeah. Reparations. Brief. Okay. All right. You, know, you all can find on YouTube uh, Paul Salmon, the economics editor at the NewsHour. Uh, PBS uh, uh, did a segment on reparations. He has myself and he has uh, Professor William Darity uh, and Darity's wife. I'm sorry. I don't remember her name now uh, on and I'm arguing against, and of course Sandy Darity is arguing for Darity's professor at Duke University. He and I were in uh, graduate school together at MIT back in the 70s. Why am I against? Okay, let me just start by saying 
yes, there has been a history disadvantaging and marginalizing the slaves first and their descendants who were not given the benefits of full citizenship for a century after emancipation, notwithstanding the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. There's been a history. It's been injurious. To some degree, it accounts for the disparities that we observe in society today. Okay? So I'm acknowledging that. On the other hand, we are a dynamic country of 330-some million people. The country has changed completely since the mid-1960s because of scores of millions of non-white immigrants who've come and joined our, uh, joined our uh, ranks. I don't think a federal program, let's just do the arithmetic, 35 million African Americans, and you can put in a number. I'm going to say $50,000. It hardly constitutes adequate compensation for injury, but let me put in $50,000. We're up at near $2 trillion. The budget for Social Security, I'm talking about old age insurance, for the entire country is about $1 trillion. So we're talking about creating a federal program that is on the scale of Social Security in a country that is very diverse, defined as reparation to the descendants of slaves. I'm not going to get into the South Africa-style racial accountancy that would be necessary to administer such a program. I'm simply talking about the political reality of doing it. A, it's not going to happen, and I wouldn't spend my political capital on it. B, it shouldn't happen, because that's not the way I want to think about social policy in my country. But I'm going to add something to that. Let me just say what I just said. It's not going to happen because it's politically infeasible given the nature of the country's political reality. It shouldn't happen because that is no way to spend a trillion dollars ministering to the needs of our people. But I want to say something else. Why would I convert the birthright moral currency of having descended from slaves and been affected by that into a chip? that could be discharged across a bargaining table. Because once those reparations are paid, game over. Once those reparations are paid, don't be coming around here telling me about uh, fatherless children or schools that don't work or high incarceration rates or whatever it might be, because you hope people have been paid. In other words, what I'm saying is, in my view, the right way to deal with the consequences of slavery is to create a compact of social obligation amongst our people such that those who suffer are ministered to regardless of their race. That's what I think is the right way to do it. I say commodifying my suffering and bargaining with the rest of the country over y'all owe me, y'all owe me, will lead to one thing, the discharge of the obligation. At best, at best, it will lead to the discharge of the obligation. Now, if you think checks raining down on African Americans, and I know what people are going to say, we're not just talking about checks, we're talking about investing in institutions and so forth and so on. You're going to invest in institutions for black people? You're going to invest in health for black people? You're going to invest in America, in education for black people? I don't think it can be defended morally, and I don't think it can be achieved politically. It's a sacred obligation rectifying the deleterious consequences of America's criminal past is not a commodity. It can't be priced. It should not be traded. Anthony Batusa. 
Uh, first, let me say thank you to Dr. Lowry for um, uh, taking the time to join us here today. It My was pleasure. invigorating. Uh, it was insightful. And hopefully we get a lot of great questions from the audience today as well. Um, so I'm a professor of religion, um, so I'm not going to get into the numbers. I was told there wouldn't be math when I signed up to do religion, <laughs> and I expect that to be the case. But I do have two kind of longish questions, if you'll bear with me for a second. So my first question is this. I want to recognize and applaud the way in which you describe concerns about tests for authenticity being a real black or a true black person as a black conservative. And recognize that this comes from both a place of personal concern and reality in the political social situation we find ourselves in. But against that, many would argue, myself included, that a greater problem, perhaps, is with the authenticity of those on the so-called right, the authenticity of conservatives, who, at one, in one hand, want to argue they're open to a, a variety of viewpoints, they're trying to level the playing ground, they're trying to divest control and authority to states and local levels, when in reality this is the same kind of language we've seen time and time again be used to disadvantage black communities, people of color, and other folks on the margins of society. So my question to you then is, to what extent does your attempt to offer more nuance and complexity by counting yourself as a kind of black conservative only feed into the kind of narratives and exploitation that you yourself want to undermine in some way or some level? Um, put it differently, while you're afraid of, of liberals tokenizing black folks, to what extent are conservative arguments just tokenizing you and others? Okay. My second, why don't you do that first and do the second one? Uh, How you want what's to what's your inclination? Well, if you'd allow me, I could respond, but I'm willing to wait. I'm, you'll allow me to respond because oh, yes. I, because uh, you got a point there, uh, and I'll, I'll acknowledge it. He says sincerity on the side of conservatives. He says authenticity. Do they really care? Uh, might you not be a token? Could they be using you? I'm not putting words in your mouth, or am, sure. you know, that's right. what you're getting at. Um, I can remember attending a conference, it's been years ago now, uh, where I was the black conservative in the room, and I started, it, I, it was like an epiphany, it, like, it sort of hit me all at once. What am I doing here? Because I wasn't saying anything that the other conservatives weren't saying, but I was the black guy saying it. And I said, ah, you guys just want to hear a black guy say, you think you're going to get cover? You think somebody's going to not call you a racist because you got a black guy on your side? Is that what I am? I, I'm, I'm now your trick pony? You know, and it was like it hit me. I said, I don't want to live like that, and I don't want to live like that. So, yeah, there's some of that. Um, when Charles Murray published The Bell Curve in 1994, Richard Herrnstein and Charles Murray, Bell Curve, uh, that's a book about intelligence and American uh, social policy, and amongst the points that it stresses is that differences between the races and intelligence have something to do with the genetic inheritance of the different populations, or at least may. They say they're agnostic about the issue, but... You know, they put that out there. Uh, and I go to my conservative magazine editors at Commentary Magazine. I'm talking about Norman Podhoritz and Neil Kazadoy. I'll name the names of the people. They were the editors. They've been happy to publish my pieces criticizing Jesse Jackson for hugging Yasser Arafat on the West Bank or criticizing affirmative action or whatever it was. And I said, I want to write a critical review of this book. I'm a social scientist. I'm a fellow of the econometric society. They can't snow me with the stats. I'm not convinced by the argument. I think the book is injurious to a certain degree, and I would like to write a critical review of the book. They said, no, thanks. They said, the uh, liberals are attacking Charles, and we're going to circle the wagons. They didn't say those words, but that's kind of what they said. And I said to them, you know, if it was the Jews who were being attacked uh, in an important intellectual form, this is Commentary Magazine that I'm talking, you would expect me, 
you know, by Louis Farrakhan or somebody, you would you would expect me to to back your play. Uh, and you know, the answer was basically tough. You know, no, we're not. You know, we're not doing that. That's man. That's twenty five years ago. That was an opening uh, kind of uh, uh, you know scales falling from my eyes kind of thing. So. Um, I guess gave one example. I could have given many examples. I've written this. I've written that, you know, when Norman Pothoritz, uh, uh, uh well, let me not just uh, dump on Norman. With Marty Peretz, <laughs> <laughs> the publisher of the New Republic in the years when I was a contributing editor at the New Republic, uh, uh, Ralph Ellison dies. You know, you know what I'm talking about, Ralph Ellison, the great Ralph Ellison. They give Shelby Steele the assignment of writing the, the intellectual obituary of Ralph Ellison. Now, I'm not an English professor, but I know that much. Okay? Shelby Steele ought not have been writing the intellectual obituary of Ralph Ellison in The New Republic. I know that much. That was Leon Wieseltier's call. I go to Marty, my friend Marty Peretz, and I say, man, come on, man, what's your magazine doing? I mean, you know, I'm not saying it has to be a lefty. I'm just saying, come on. This is Ralph Ellison. And uh, his, uh, he won't return my call. I can't get an answer. Uh, Leon's running the back of the book. That was it. Okay, so I'm telling tales out of school by way of saying I'm aware of the danger and I have experienced some of the downside of the insincerity of some of my conservative colleagues and have been caused to wonder whether or not I was not allowing myself to be used. So I'm struck out in an independent direction, and I believe that this Glenn Lowry, not all black conservatives, I think I can stand on my record over the last 25 years. It's not been perfect. It's not always been right, but it has been cognizant of the danger of insincerity on the right and of uh, appropriation or misappropriation of my well-intended and sincere arguments for political ends that I could not endorse. My second question, since I have a microphone and get to do that, uh, relates to the last topic that was bringing up, the topic of reparations. So obviously you're one who has been very critical of the case for reparations, both the article by ta Coates and others who have joined the, the call for reparations. Um, but it seems to me that your criticism of reparations, at least as we've heard it tonight, uh, seems rather reductive and, and misses the heart of what Coates and others are arguing. You describe it as chits, as simple chaos, uh, payouts and cash. And Coates himself says this. I'll just read his own words. Reparations by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustice, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. And he goes on. So my first concern is, to what extent are you playing into polemics and reducing Coates and others' arguments to simple cash payouts and dollars raining down on black folks? And secondly, added to that, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but several institutions, religious institutions, like Princeton Theological Seminary or Virginia Theological Seminary, have recently undergone race audits because of the concern and the clamor for reparations. They've done an accounting of who in their community owned slaves. They're setting aside millions of dollars in a variety of ways, both cash payouts, developmental aid, scholarship, and these kinds of things. So 
added to my question, to what extent um, would you recognize the importance of the kind of arguments and demands that Coates and others are making for motivating even small-scale institutions to make a reckoning and make amends for the harms of slavery in the past and today? Okay, so we're talking about reparations. Now, my opposition had to do with uh, uh, government, with the state, with public policy, okay? If Georgetown University wants to give uh, tuition to the descendants of the enslaved persons who were trafficked in order to raise cash to save them from insolvency in the 19th century, that's up to them. If XYZ Corporation, which is a successor entity to ABC Corporation that happened to be engaged in slave trafficking, trafficking for their business interests, for their brand, want to engage in a program that they're going to call reparations, they're private actors, they can do what they want to do. I'm talking about the government of the United States. Now, if uh, the policy was limited to what uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates says he's talking about, a recognition and a coming to terms with and a spiritual whatnot, then he's not talking about reparations as I understand it. I mean, we're using the same words, but we mean some things entirely different. He's talking about the national narrative. He's talking about the 1619 Project or something like that. He's talking about what we teach in our... Uh, schools and what we preach in our sermons about who the country is and what has happened to the various peoples within the country and so forth and so on. I might disagree with him about that, but I don't think he's talking about the thing that I'm against. When I say that I'm against, we we could have an argument about whether the 1619 Project or something like that is a good thing, about whether or not we really are not talking about the true history of race in the country. I think we talk in some ways too much about it, when, as I've already indicated in my earlier responses, what I think we ought to be working toward is a transracial, humanistic understanding of our social and political problems and creating a decent society, and that would be a decent society for everybody. But, 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 so he's not talking about chits. You're not talking about checks. You're not talking about a federal program where we have to decide who's black. Because that's how, when you're paying people reparations, it seems to me you have to operate. You have to decide who's going to get paid. But he's not talking about that. He's not talking about checks going out to people. He's not talking about preferential treatment of individuals based upon their race and the extent to which they're eligible for this or that benefit. Fine. Let's have a conversation. He and I don't have anything to agree about. To the extent that he's actually talking about state action intended to repair the consequences of slavery on a scale that would make any difference, I'm against it for the reasons that I've stated. A, I think it is the wrong way to frame questions of justice in the country, especially on a scale such as what would be required to make a difference. And B, I think it commodifies something that should not be put into transactional terms because once those transactions are consummated, the moral claim that you have on the attention of the country will be uh, will have been discharged. Okay, now questions from the general audience. Please uh, wait till you get a mic. Hi. Um, earlier on, you postulated that informal social relations hold a large role in perpetuating racial inequity. Um, you know, as a white person, I can see this. I see both subconscious racism in myself and in almost everyone I know as embarrassing and uncomfortable as that is. Do you not believe that without the mechanism of affirmative action, this kind of subconscious racism, both in its overt and, again, in its subconscious forms, could potentially lead to racism in the admissions process. 
um, essentially beyond just giving black students an advantage statistically, is affirmative action not a bulwark against the subconscious racism of admissions officers? Thank you. Affirmative action, a bulwark against subconscious racism by admissions officers. Is that what you said? Okay. So if I were teaching a class on affirmative action, one of the first distinctions that I would try to draw to the students' attention is a distinction between affirmative action as an instrument of anti-discrimination policy. And if you look at the history of affirmative action, this was an important part of what was going on. Because if I say don't discriminate against African-American applicants, but if I don't see every single transaction that the firm engages in, I end up as an enforcement agent necessarily in the business of comparing the rate of employment of African-Americans in the firm to the availability of African-Americans to be employed in the market. And if there's a numerical disparity of a sufficient size, I have to conclude indirectly that the firm must be engaging in discrimination. And therefore, my remedy will may be don't let your hiring rate amongst African-Americans fall too far below the availability of African-Americans to be hired. Otherwise, we're going to sanction you for discrimination. A lot of people would call that affirmative action. That kind of affirmative action, in my opinion, doesn't raise the questions that I was concerned about. It's an instrument of anti-discrimination policy. I well might think that private employers in this or that industry, in this or that city, are susceptible to engaging in discrimination against African-American applicants for employment and therefore want to use that kind of affirmative action. As an empirical matter, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't believe that admissions committees at selective universities in the United States are um, of the character that they would engage in discrimination. What would, he, what would we mean by subconscious racism of admissions officers? Oh, I see he's black, or I think he might be black because he's applying from an address in a zip code where most of the people are black. Let's not admit him, even though his scores are uh, similar to someone else. I don't think that's actually happening. I don't think admissions committees in colleges are, um, practi- are, are racially biased in that way. I might think police officers are racially biased in that way. I might think that district attorneys who are bringing cases to prosecute, plea bargaining them and discharging and whatnot and using their discretion in very various ways are racially bargain, uh, uh, biased in that way. Where I have a strong a priori suspicion of racial bias, I will want to rely on some quantitative assessment of the uh, uh, performance of the institution relative to some guideline or bar. And if you want to call that affirmative action, that would be a kind of affirmative action that I'm okay with. But using different standards for judging the performance of people, that's actually not uh, implicit bias or explicit bias by an admissions committee in, uh, against African-Americans. That's explicit bias in favor of African-Americans, and that's what I've been raising a question about. Am I being responsive to you? Because yeah, you can ask a follow-up. Sure. I just wanted to sort of clarify, when I was talking about Subconscious bias. I'm not talking about an admissions officer saying, oh, I think this, this applicant is an African American. I'm not going to accept them. It's more, I mean, obviously I have not worked in admissions. I haven't worked in a university setting, but when you're dealing with a large pool of applicants, most of whom are very, very, very qualified, especially yeah. at these elite universities, you have to make very fine-tuned distinctions from what I understand. And I think at a subconscious level, you can't make an objectively correct decision at a lot of Instances, and I, I don't. I think it's possible that at a very subconscious level, there might be connotations in a white admissions officers, again based perhaps on the name or the address of the person, where in the very back of their head, 
that might lead them to be slightly less likely to admit a student they perceive to be African-American, not through any kind of conscious volition or any desire to be racist, but just through the simple fact that we are prejudiced human beings living in a prejudiced society. Okay, let me let me amplify my response to you then, um, because I might think the following: I might think an admissions committee has reified certain instruments of measurement beyond the extent to which they are, you know, reliable predictors of who's going to be a good uh, student. So, for example, they may simply look at the SAT and not look at anything else. They may give a weight to the essay that discounts the extent to which I can learn how interesting and potentially creative a person is from the way in which they've uh, pr- produced their essay. They may not attend to the letter, the moving letter, the long moving letter of recommendation that comes from a, a guidance counselor or a high school teacher because they're just looking at the numbers. Um, when we are admitting people to the PhD program in economics at my university, that's one of my main beasts with my colleagues. They're just looking at the GREQ. And if it's not way in the right tail, they want to say no to the student. I'm looking at the paper that the student submitted, which was their undergraduate research paper, and I'm saying this is really an interesting and creative person. I'm not talking about race now. I'm I'm just talking about how do you assess. If I thought admissions committees were overly emphasizing certain narrow measures of performance, and as a consequence, African Americans were excluded, I well might want to urge upon the admissions committee a reconsideration of what they're doing. The African-American exclusion might be, if you will, the miner's canary, the kind of early signal of something that was askew in the larger evaluation process and that needed to be addressed. But I would be doing that in the service of making the evaluation process more effective at selecting people who could perform, including people who were not black. I wouldn't be doing it merely to increase the number of blacks who were in my ranks, although the consequence of me having done so could well be to increase the number of black people who are in my ranks. Hi, Professor Lowry. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you, Professor Santori and the Institute for hosting Professor Lowry. Um, so I had two quick questions. First of all, you um, differentiated what you called baseline equality from the sort of optical equality that universities and colleges try to use when admitting certain students who might be a couple of standard deviations below on standardized test scores. Um, what, how exactly would you define um, baseline equality? What do you mean by baseline equality? Um, if you want to answer that first, or I can move on to my second question. You want me to answer? Sure. Okay, so what I was getting at was, and maybe it's a little, you know, ungenerous to, to my friends in university admis- administration. I was getting at uh, the idea that they're concerned about covering their rears uh, with respect to the university's image um, in an environment in which there's a lot of social pressure to embrace inclusion and diversity as a goal of the institution. And so they can't have a photograph on the cover of the uh, college magazine of the class of, uh, of 2023 or whatever it is that doesn't have enough black faces in it. If they have a photograph on there like that, uh, they're going to get flack uh, and more, and they're going to they're going to hurt their long. And the president of the university is going to have a hard time moving up to being the president of a much bigger university because uh, his or her brand is going to be uh, undermined. 
So they're concerned about optics, and I was being perhaps a little bit cynical in saying their concern about optics might come at the expense of what I'm calling baseline equality. What do I mean by baseline? Well, let's not talk about college admissions for a minute. Let's talk about uh, the general educational attainment of American students more broadly. There's something called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is a examination administered by the Department of Education on a national basis. This is numbers now. This is statistics, but I'm not going to go into it very deeply. Just to say they give this test to fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth graders, and they try to measure the acuity of the student in terms of their mastery over their relevant material in reading and mathematics at each of those three stages, and they report the results and they break them down by race. They have basic categorizations like below basic proficiency, basic proficiency, above basic proficiency in terms of student performance. You look over a series of years at African-American youngsters and where they come out on the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and you'll find 25, 30, 40 percent of black youngsters, depending on the year of the grade, testing below basic proficiency in mathematics and reading. You'll find very, very few at an advanced level. This is a nationally administered measurement of what the kids know. That's the baseline inequality that I want to address. If we're not producing youngsters who are more effectively realizing their human potential, we're not going to be equal. And we can jigger the, the roster at a few places where the spotlight is shining, but we won't have achieved equality. That's, so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, you might say, excuse me, you might say it's not Harvard's job to solve America's problem. And that's true. Harvard has its own job to do. They're only one little small part of a much bigger picture. But I'm a public intellectual addressing myself to the broad questions that are confronting society, and I just want to put the emphasis in the places where I think it deserves to be put. Sure. That actually leads me to a second question. Um, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago, a product of CPS schools, and I noticed that certain neighborhood schools are just um, funded so much better and given so much more attention than other schools. Do you think that public policy ought to address um, these schools in a different way? What's your grasp on how these schools are operating as an economist? Yeah, I do. I, I think there's a debate about how much funding is the critical issue relative to other things, okay? But let's just talk about funding. My position would be that the principle, so a lot of state constitutions have this provision in them that says that uh, the funding uh, available to schools should be equalized when schools are based on local property taxes, their budgets, and the communities differ in the value of property and hence differ in the resources that are available. That's substantial, and the states uh, commit themselves to rectifying that variation across communities and the resources by adjusting the amount of state transfer for education to the local district to try to equalize. And the goal is equal expenditures per pupil across the districts. So a district in Chicago, let's say, which might not have as much money, and a district in a wealthy suburb, uh, Highland Park or something like that, they're trying to equalize. I would say that's not good enough. I would say equal effective educational opportunity ought to be the goal. If I have a school located across the street from a housing project with troubled families and a lot of disorder and low income and poverty and so forth and so on, it well may cost twice as much per student to provide those kids with the same opportunity as would be someplace else. Schools can't fully compensate for what's not going on at the home, but they can certainly partially compensate for that. 
So, yeah, differences in school funding would certainly attract my attention if I were the czar in control of trying to produce uh, more equality of opportunity, although I don't think it would be sufficient. I think if we're talking about schools, we have to talk about the extent to which you know, uh, teacher performance is effective. I mean, I know this is really very controversial. We have to talk about the extent to which parents are engaged. We have to find instruments that hold schools accountable for delivering services to their youngsters. Um, you know, and as I say, this is controversial, uh, and I and I don't mean to provoke unduly, but uh, I don't think money is the only thing that's that we need to pay attention to. Thank you. Hello. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I love that you mentioned Evict, that it's incredible. I, I read it recently. It, it, I'm sorry, what's incredible? Uh, the, the novel Evicted. Um, oh, the book. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, and then okay. similarly, another piece, of, another piece of nonfiction that I've read recently that sort of pertains to the issue of affirmative action is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's D- David and Goliath. Um, and he sort of talks about in it that what institution you go to is significantly less important than sort of what percentile you're in in academics in that institution. So he argues that sort of um, an individual going to a less prestigious school but is in, who is in the top 10% at that school is actually going to have a much higher access to opportunities than somebody who's in like the bottom 25th percentile at a much higher level of prestige school. And so he doesn't want to touch the issue too much in the book, but he sort of mentions that there is a chance that affirmative action in bringing students of color to higher level institutions in terms of prestige are actually overall depriving them of educational opportunity. And so I've actually, he's not an economist, so I've been very interested to ask an economist as to whether or not there is some some statistical validity to that claim and that argument. Well, I, I refer you to the excellent article in the Journal of Economic Literature uh, last year by Peter Arcia Decano and um, I think his name is David Loveman. It might not be David, but it's Arcia Decano and Loveman, uh, and it's about uh, the um, what they call the quality fit trade off. There's an article. You'll find it. Won't have any trouble finding it. You go to Google Scholar, quality fit trade-off, and that article will pop right up. Because what they're talking about there is an empirical question, the question that you posed. I don't know if Malcolm Gladwell has the um, ability to give a persuasive answer to a question that I think would require careful data analysis to effectively address with respect to Gladwell. I haven't read the book, Gladwell's book. But I have read uh, Arcia DeCano and Loveman's um, review, their uh, essay, um, and they make a very strong case that, yes, there is a trade-off. Now, let me explain, if you'll allow me, what, the quali- what they mean by quality fit trade-off. So schools vary in their quality, but you take a given kid, he may or may not be a good fit at a given school, okay? So like you were saying, the kid might be in the 80th percentile of the student distribution in terms of their academic performance at a school that has a relatively low quality and in the 20th percentile at a school that has a very high quality. So they'd be a less good fit at the high-quality school. Will they do better or worse in life? That's the trade-off. If you could hold the fit constant and improve the quality of the school, the kid's going to be better off. If you hold the school constant and you improve the fit, the kid's going to be better off. But if you have to trade off higher quality for less good fit, 
It's an empirical question as to whether or not the kid's going to be better off. They argue that the evidence is not entirely definitive, but suggestive of the fact that at least within a certain range, there's a trade-off of the sort that Gladwell is alluding to. And they have a graph in their paper, which I can describe to you, and forgive me, I am an economist, okay? So on the horizontal, okay, is the quality of the school measured by the average GPA of the students, uh, not GPA, the average SAT score of the students who are admitted to the school, okay? On the vertical is the proportion of the student body at the school that is black, okay? So as we move along the horizontal, we're getting to higher quality schools. The graph looks like a U. It falls, and then when you get to the high quality schools, it goes up again. Okay, now do you all understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, the best schools, the most desirable schools, can outbid the intermediate schools for the attention of black students. Who would not want to go to uh, Harvard or Princeton or Yale uh, over a University of Illinois or Ohio State? With respect, okay, with respect. But, I mean, most people are going to prefer the more prestigious school. The um, U-shapedness of that graph means that the African-American youngsters are allocated either to relatively low-quality schools, which are basically admitting everybody who applies, or to relatively high-quality schools, which are cherry-picking the best African-American applicants and competing them away from the intermediate schools. Are African-Americans as a whole better off because of that? Uh, I think there's every reason to be concerned about that. But I don't say, and I'm not saying, that the evidence is definitive in, in that regard. It's a relevant question. I, I'll just add something. The late Justice Antonin Scalia hinted at this question, much to the chagrin of many observers, when during oral argument in that uh, case out of the University of Texas, the affirmative action case, he asked the uh, attorneys defending the university, the university's practice of affirmative action, well, you know, uh, might not, uh, might it always be a good thing to try to get as many black students as you can at your fancy dancy university? Maybe they'd be better off if they went to a less demanding school, said Justice Scalia. And, every, you know, all hell broke loose. Everybody started calling him a racist and whatnot like that. I interpreted him in his own inimicable fashion, meaning to be provocative, as raising a first order question. It's a scientific question, not, not a political question. So I don't think the data are yet in to resolve it definitively, but it, there's every reason to be uh, interested in that question. This person has been wanting to get in here. Yes. Yeah. Could you pass the mic to her, though, please? I think there one up there first. But I yeah, okay, but could you get this one here? Thank you. Hi, thank you. Uh, about a million years ago, when I was a freshman at St. Olaf, I had the opportunity to hear William F. Buckley Jr. speak. And back then, it was fashionable to be liberal and to be somewhat resistant to this conservative icon. And, and so there was some resistance in the room. But I was unabashed, and I had a question for him, and I was honored to be able to ask him. And um, I'm sorry, who is he? William F. Buckley Jr. Aha. Uh -huh. So he had a, you know, he had the capacity to excoriate any opponent with wit and words, but he took my question and, um, with a twinkle in his eye and reflecting it back to the audience, 
he made it so that they all hear what my question was. He made it a slightly better and slightly more interesting question. <laughs> and I don't remember the question or the answer, but I remember how he treated me. And I remember that I learned that day from his conservative position. I didn't necessarily agree with it. But I know that I learned from him and it informed my developing positions. So my question for you is, are, where are the forums now for that sort of honest, uh, conservative, conservative argument to make? Cause again, while I may not necessarily totally agree, I am always educated by it. And I feel like some of the, the kind of formal dialogue or communication in the public forum now is a circus and it's it, the conservative or liberal isn't he actually representing what we might understand those concepts to be so are you finding forums as a public intellectual to have you know to present your positions on these really interesting debates where there isn't a clear black or white answer but it's in the dialogue maybe that we find the the best answers yeah, sadly, I think the, those forms are relatively few. I like to think I'm contributing a little bit in my own podcast and trying to create such a forum in my own little small corner of the universe. Of course, I'm, I'm no Bill Buckley. Um, but, but uh, yeah, um, what business are we in at the university if we're not creating such forums? We're failing our students. We're not living up to our responsibilities. We're not earning our pay. Um, the universities ought to be the place where that kind of discourse occurs. Uh, what, what kind of discourses am I talking about? I'm talking about conservatives and liberals, pro-lifers and pro-choicers. Those of us who have questions about affirmative action and those who are dyed in the world supporters of it. Those who think that the tax rate is too high and those who think it's too low can argue out their positions, their differences of ethics and values, there are differences of fact and reason. That's what a university should be. So if we're not producing that, we're not doing our jobs. I wonder if the term white is itself colorblind. I don't know of any Caucasian person who is anything but a shade of beige, and I wonder if it would help to disempower privilege and undermine inequality if we abandon the term white and simply use the word either Caucasian or beige. I'm sorry, but I could not hear the last of what you were saying. You want us to abandon the term white. That I did hear. I wonder if it would disempower privilege and um, okay. and undermine inequality to abandon the term white, which to me feels colorblind, and insist on using the word Caucasian or beige. Beige. I guess that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? Well, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mean, I must say, uh, makes a point in his uh, Between the World and Me, uh, perhaps also in some of the essays, of talking about uh, people who believe themselves to be white. He talks about the self-conscious embrace of whiteness by people, and he understands that to be, in a way, a kind of, you know, uh, 
uh, Ill, uh, exemplification of, a, of, of privilege and a, a kind of white supremacy. Um, I'm not sure what white actually means if I were to try to give a scientific definition, right? I mean, what are what are we talking about? You want to use the term Caucasian? Am I going to distinguish between Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans? Is, are Jews white? Uh, you know, what about uh, Spaniards? I mean, things like that. Um, but I don't think the issue here is linguistic. Okay. I, I I could turn a question back to you. Do you want us to be colorblind then? If people stop calling themselves white, should others stop calling themselves black and use Negroid instead? Um, maybe I'm not fully understanding. Uh, maybe I'm not fully saying understanding the question changing the, the words that we use is not going to change power dynamics it's not going to change the distribution of wealth and um, so on um, I prefer human being myself yes by all means I think that white implies purity that some Caucasians assume and I wonder if the term beige could have been can someone repeat that? Because I couldn't hear it. Uh, you think that white implies purity and the term beige doesn't imply as much purity as the term white? Oh. Okay. Oh, no, uh, okay, and the term black could, uh, by uh, sort of... Uh, uh, Contrast could imply uh, some impurity or something like that. Um, good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't get to reverse social conventions and linguistic conventions by fiat. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a hard thing. On the other hand, uh, the history of African Americans and our self-designation has gone through some interesting phases. You know, African American, Afro American, Black, Negro, colored, etc. Uh, so it may be that the work of white revolutionaries such as yourself of raising the consciousness of progressive-minded white people about how it is they think about themselves uh, could engage in some something that's analogous to what happened in the 1960s and 70s with African Americans when we became not Negroes, but black, and then not black, but African-American, not Afro-American, but African-American. That was all a dynamic amongst African-Americans about self-understanding. It may be that someone needs to lead a similar conversation of that sort amongst, quote-unquote, white people, or as ta would have it, people who mistakenly understand themselves to be white. I don't see why that can't happen, but that's not my business. First of all, thank you so much for coming, Professor Laurie. Um, the mic is not on, or you need Hello. to talk louder. Okay, oh, there you, there you go. Hey, first of all, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed hearing you speak. My question is short, and it's just I'm curious as to what your take, uh, what's your take on equality of outcome? Inequality of outcome? Equality of outcome. Equality of outcome as a standard, not equality of opportunity? Yes. Okay. It's a bad idea. Uh, in my opinion, 
I, we're talking race here today, so I assume you mean racial equality of outcome as the goal. And I don't see any reason why. Let's talk about those white people that the lady a minute ago was talking about. We got Italians, we got Poles, we got Irish, we got Jews, we got etc. Okay. There's nothing close to equality of outcome between those groups. Thomas Sowell, the infamous but I think apt uh, conservative economist at the Hoover Institution, has made a living out of pointing this out. You look around the world. There's no place in the world where groups are equal. You go to Nigeria, the Igbo are running more businesses and are the professors in the universities and outsized numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look at the Chinese uh, immigrant population, immigrant, they're not immigrants, the Chinese uh, populations throughout Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, in terms of the business ownership and uh, the educational achievement and whatnot, they tend to do relatively, look at the Jews. Count the Nobel laureates in economics over the last 30 years who were Jewish. It's way more than the Jewish percentage of the population. Do I want equal outcomes there? Look at the billionaires. Who are they? They don't equally represent every group. Why would I expect, in a, in a way, I don't take the very fact of groups seriously if I insist that the groups have to produce the same relative number of physicians, engineers, professors of economics, artists, uh, Oscar winners, and so forth and so on. Groups are not the same. They have different traditions, different cultures, different values, different practices, different institutions, different histories. Of course there are going to be group differences in outcomes. Totalitarianism is what comes from insisting that we produce an ex post facto result in which every group is equally represented. I'm against that. Well, that brings us to the end of our time. Thanks very much, Glenn, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all for being with us this afternoon. Keep an eye peeled for uh, other Institute events this fall. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.